Chapel, Mason City. Last week we began this study in 1 Peter. It's written by the Apostle Peter around 67 AD. The letter primarily deals with suffering and trials in life. More specifically, how Christians can find hope in times of suffering. That's one of the themes of the book. And then also, the sort of conduct that God expects of Christians who live in this fallen, broken, pagan world. We looked at the first two verses last time, so let's pick it up today at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, abundant, or who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love." Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Of this salvation, prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that, not to themselves, but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word today, and we do approach it as it is, the very words of God. We come um, for good reason and believe, Lord, that through men, you inspired these words. And we do believe that this is the infallible word of God, and we receive it at that we ask, Lord, that we could come under your authority here and learn from you. Holy Spirit, teach us today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. What do you do when you're dealing with trials, suffering, and difficulties in your life? Some people turn to drugs and alcohol and other things. Some people play golf. Some people, uh, you know, go and have hobbies. And some people go to a boxing gym. What do you do with suffering and trials in your life? So Peter's writing to an audience that is going through some rough stuff. And you'll remember that if you were here last week. To encourage them... He turns their focus upon their living hope, their great salvation. Understanding these aspects of salvation that we see in this passage enables believers like you and me to rejoice in trials. You think that's crazy? How could somebody rejoice in trials? Understanding the aspects of salvation that are described in this passage Enable believers to rejoice in trials. Now, the outline's very simple today. It's just three things. Our salvation, here's these three aspects that we're going to point out in the passage. He says, our salvation is assured. Our salvation anticipated causes joy. And number three, our salvation was predicted. 
Number one, our salvation is assured. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what we see here, Peter uh, is getting into this prayer section of an epistle. When you're studying the Bible, there are different types of writings in the Bible. This one is called an epistle, which is just a word for a letter. So it's a letter written to a church. Epistles in the Bible written by Paul, Peter, John, uh, Jude is an epistle. They are letters either written to individuals or to churches. This one is written to a whole group of Christians. And in an epistle, you have typically the little greeting, the first two verses of this one, and then it goes into a prayer section. And that's what we see in verses 3 through 12. But as Peter's doing this, this blessed be God section, he talks about all these different elements of salvation. So he's in this blessed be God and the Father. He's, look at what we see there. He's talking... Uh, he's, he's saying, blessed is God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We see two people of the Trinity there. We see God the Father and God the Son. Now, I want to give you a little bit of context for those of you that don't know the, the context of uh, the letter of First Peter. And we talked about it a little bit last time. But these Christians had been scattered from Rome because there was heavy persecution. You remember the picture I showed you last week? Nero, the leader uh, of the Roman Empire at that time, he was known for having these wild parties, uh, you know, actually where he would ride his chariot around in his courtyard naked. And uh, while he was doing that, he would be screaming wildly while the Christians that he had strung up around his perimeter were burning after they had been dipped in wax. And so he literally treated Christians like tiki torches and he burnt their flesh from them because of their faith. This isn't a fairy tale. Can you imagine? Can you imagine you're out partying in your backyard and you just say, what is that smell? And he says, ah, it's the smell of burning Christians. You know, have you ever smelled burning hair? You know, you get a vivid picture of that today. This was the culture in that time, burning Christians f for fun. I'm going to read a little bit that a scholar says about this. He says, in the ancient world, anyone who left home, see, they left home uh, to get away from this, and they were strangers all over Cappadocia, Bithynia, the, Asia, the area of Asia Minor. He says, anyone who left home for a different setting was a stranger. Being unknown in the new setting, strangers were both feared and condemned. Their particular accents, puzzling customs, and suspicious behaviors were naturally perceived to be threats to established peace, order, and well-being. So when these guys were scattered out all over to these different communities, they didn't welcome them. They treated them as if they were disrupting things and they were a threat. Christians being treated as they are a threat in a pagan land. They were viewed to be dangerous. Such strangers were normal targets of unofficial or everyday expressions of discrimination or disadvantage. In Asia Minor, these people would be referred to as something that loosely translates to Christ lackeys. Now, the native population knew that these strangers believed in a person called Jesus Christ that had proclaimed a God who intolerantly forbade allegiance to or worship of any other God. These strangers foolishly followed the advice of Jesus. For this reason, members of Jesus groups were reviled and unjustly slandered as immoral or criminal wrongdoers. They were threatened with harm and reproach for their allegiance to Christ. They had to pay higher taxes. They um, were excluded from popular assemblies, subject to severe forms of civil punishment. 
So I don't know if you can think about something like this. If you could, I mean, think about it. Think of it. You, because you believe in Christ, because you know that Jesus has risen from the grave, and you know your life's been changed by Christ, that very thing becomes a source of persecution in your life. It becomes a source of difficulty. You remember why the Christians were kicked out of Rome? Because Nero burnt the place down and the fire got out of control and he decided it would be convenient to blame Christians. Up until that time, Christianity was accepted in Rome. It was just thought of as a sect of Judaism. But at that time, it became illegal. Christianity, I don't know if you can think of it, Christianity becoming illegal because the government just gets totally, you know, there's totally pagan government. So they say, I, you know, let's blame the Christians for the fire. And uh, all of a sudden, they're on the run. When I was reading these words from the scholar about the culture, I almost, I almost wondered, you know, uh, you know, I'm not like a gloom and doom or, you know, any kind of guy, but I mean, you wonder if America's headed in this sort of direction as intolerance for Christianity uh, seems to keep increasing. The letter of Peter has a lot to say about Christians in exile. He calls them, or, you know, he, he says, blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, so think of this. He's already comforting them. If you were on the run for your faith, wouldn't it be nice to have the apostle Peter write you a letter and say, listen, God is your father. Now, that's a very comforting word to me here today, isn't it? That God is my father. He's your father. I find great comfort in that. He's not some distant you know, uh, far off sort of God that has his hands off of his creation like a deist. You know, he's, he's, he's not uh, one of millions of gods that maybe I can yoke myself through spiritual yoga and practices or something like that. He's not impersonal. He's not, um, you know, he's not mechanical. He's a father. He's not a mechanical God who is only turned on when you press the right religious buttons. He's a father. And that's incredibly comforting to Christians here today, to me. Now, he goes on and he says, now he's going to talk about the Father. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope. So, now he's talking about what God the Father has done. He's praising him. Peter's opening this letter with praise. He says that, according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us Again, he's talking about salvation. This God, this Father has saved you. Oh, I love it. But look at what he says there too as he gets at the motive of it. He says it's his abundant mercy. Do you know what mercy is? They say grace is getting what you do not deserve and mercy is not getting what you deserve. Mercy's like this. Mercy's like you borrow your tablet, a, a tablet from your friend. You've got his iPad. And then you're riding home and it's in your backpack and you're messing around on your bike and jumping off curbs. And that tablet comes out of your backpack and breaks and you take it to your friend and your friend says, you know what? I understand. I forgive you. That's mercy. They have every right to say, you guy, you should buy me a new iPad now. You know, every right to. What you did was wrong, right? But... He says, hey, I forgive you. That's mercy. And that's how Peter talks about our salvation. He says, we have been begotten again because of God's abundant mercy. 
It would have to be because of mercy because if he was to give us what we deserve, he couldn't forgive us. Does that make sense? I mean, so it's because of his mercy. This is a very good reminder today that God, this father that we have, is slow to anger. He's gracious. He's good. He's full of compassion. He's always ready to forgive. He's abounding in mercy. When he says begotten again, that means uh, the same concept, John 3, being born again. Jesus tells Nicodemus, you need to be born again. That term born again could be confusing. Let me make it very simple. Every Christian that's a real Christian is a born again Christian. There's no such thing as a Christian and then a born again Christian. That was kind of popular in the 80s, right? When the term born again Christian came out, um, it was like, well, I'm just a Christian. I'm not one of these born again Christians. No, everybody that is a Christian has to be a born again Christian. Why? Because when you're born, you know, you're, let me explain this. This will be really profound in 2023. Your mom and your dad had sex together. She became pregnant, had a baby nine months later. Like, I know this is terribly confused in 2023 how this works, but thank you, I just was able to bring clarity. Uh, you know, God bless it. Now, that's a physical birth. Now, just like you had that physical birth, you have to have a spiritual birth. Because when you're born with that physical birth, like David said, in sin, my mother conceived me. That means that from the time you come out of the womb, you're born in sin. Now, here's the reason why. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Like those two were dressed up like Adam and Eve, right? You get the picture in your mind now of them? Like Adam and Eve back in the Garden of Eden. Uh, they sinned, and through one man's transgression, all sinned. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's why when you come out of your mother, you're born a sinner. And so you have to be born again. That's what Jesus says to Nicodemus. How are you born again? When you trust in Jesus Christ, you become born again. Right then. You go from spiritually dead to spiritually alive. The Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of you, takes up full-on residence, and at that point, you receive eternal life. That's what it means to be born again. Now, that's what Peter says. Peter says the reason that God does that for people is just because of his mercy. He just has pity on you. He just says, I love you. And so because I'm a good father, I just want to forgive you, and I want to give you mercy. So he sent his son to pay your penalty, my penalty for sin, so he could extend mercy to us. Now, he says, going on, that we've been begotten again to a living hope. Now, as a result of being born again, we now have a living hope. Living hope because our hope is in Jesus, who is a living Savior. Now, many people today have a dead hope. Their heart is fixed on dead things. I really hope that I can make everybody like me. Oh, that's a dead hope, man. Because all those people that you want to like you, they're all going to die one day. You know, and so are you. I mean, it's a dead hope. It doesn't go very far. I really hope that I can get my house fixed up. Well, that's good. Fix your house up. You know, but if that's where your hope, you know, it's all in this or a hope in a relationship, hope that one day I'll have the right job. Those are all good things. But I mean, that can't be your whole source of hope in life. Right. Imagine if you have hope in athletics and then, for instance, you would get hurt and then you can't do those athletics anymore. You better hope that your hope is in something other than your athletic ability, right? And so our hope as Christians is it's a living hope. It's an eternal hope because it's in a living, eternal Christ. And when you were born again, 
by the Spirit of God, you were born into this, now you have this living hope. A hope that sustains beyond anything. A hope that sustains people on their deathbed through illness, through sickness, through stock market crashes, through house fires, through car accidents. This is a real hope that will last eternally. God has given mercy to us and allowed us to have this living hope. Imagine how that sustains people in times of trial and struggle. Because remember, he's writing to these Christians that are dealing with some tough stuff. He says, I want to remind you that God's your father and that he's given you mercy and that you have a living hope. He says, it's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Notice that in verse 3 going on. Through the resurrection of Jesus. This living hope is through the resurrection of Jesus. Simply put, if Jesus didn't resurrect from the dead, dead hope. Because Jesus did resurrect from the dead, living hope. Very simple. God's chosen people, his elect people, have a hope that is as sure as Christ's resurrection. That's very powerful. Christ has not only made your salvation possible, he's made it sure. And we have a comfort in that assurance. I'll tell you what, and if you haven't gone through some difficult stuff in life, you're going to. It's, it's going to happen. It could happen next week. It could happen later today. You don't know. Maybe some of you avoid a lot of suffering, I mean, in life because maybe you've got parents that keep you from it or maybe you've, you know, just haven't got, you know, this just hasn't happened to you at this point in life. But it, it, it will come. And when that comes, when you are a genuine Christian and you sit and you meditate on these things, you use your mind, when your mind is telling you things that are making you anxious and stressed and full of worry and depressed and all these things, what the world wants you to do is quickly go run to some pills or something like that. And that's, it, I'm not saying that that's evil, okay? I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that kind of stuff in the right circumstances. But God wants to help you to put your mind in the places that it should go. When you're a Christian, the battle is going on in your mind. And if you don't have control of your mind, you will lose the battle. And so God tells you these things. He says, look, I, I want to give you some things to think about when you're suffering, when you're struggling. I want you to remember that the creator of the universe is your father. Man, that's powerful. You say, I don't know, I grew up in church. I heard Jesus is my father my whole life. Listen, if that's your attitude towards this, your heart is so hardened, you may not even be a Christian. So I'm not trying to be a tough guy, but I'm just saying, if it, doesn't, if it doesn't minister to you to think about how the creator of the universe is your daddy, you got something problem, you got a problem in your walk, man. You know, I'm not trying to be a tough guy. Just, this is very serious. Because anxiety, these things are real. Depressions, these are real. Fears are real. But God has given you something very real to combat this stuff. The question is, is do you take this in faith? Do you believe? Do you trust this? God's your father. He's given you mercy. He hasn't given you what you deserve. Praise God. If he gave me what I deserve, do you know how many bad things I've done in this life? Do you know how many bad things I've done this week? 
I mean, I don't want to do them, but I have wicked, evil flesh in me. Do you know, can you imagine if God gave us what we deserve? But he gives us mercy. And he loves to give us mercy. How these things help when you're struggling. Man. And this is as sure as Christ's resurrection from the dead. You say, I don't know if Jesus really resurrected from the dead. Well, research it. Because he did appear to a bunch of people, 500 people even at one time. All of his disciples were willing to die horrible deaths because they would not say that Jesus is not God. Because they saw him in a resurrected state. You say, I don't know if he resurrected from the grave. Well, I mean, some pretty compelling evidence. If this was all a lie, do you think all of his 12 disciples would go to their death? Or would they just say, yeah, you're right, this is, this is a sham? Unlikely. Now, look at what he says here. He says in verse 4, he says, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away. This is what you get. When you're born into a family, uh, sometimes you're born into an inheritance. Sometimes you're born into a bunch of debt when you're born into a family, you know. But some families you're born into, you're born into an inheritance. That's kind of what he's saying. When you're born again into the family of God, you're born into an inheritance. Romans 8, 17 says that we are heirs with Christ. So everything that belongs to Christ in this universe belongs to you as a Christian. You, you're a joint heir with Christ. We have this inheritance that does not fade away. It's in heaven for us. Look what he says. He doesn't really talk about the inheritance, but he tells you what it's not like. He says it's not corruptible. Do you see that there? He says it's undefiled. He says it does not fade away. I don't know why, but I kept getting this picture when I was a kid. Uh, I grew up on a farm, and I brought this picture. I don't know if you've ever seen one of those before. Uh, it's a grain wagon. And so I used to go out on the farm on my property to the east tree line, and at the bottom of that tree line sat one of those. And it was all rusty, and I'd take my dog and climb up inside of it. And, and uh, year by year, that thing got a little more rusty and more rusty, and it decomposed and eventually fell apart and... It's the opposite of what your inheritance is. It's incorruptible. It's not subject to decay. Your future in heaven, your, your apprehension fully of being in God's presence, it doesn't fade. There's nothing that can happen to it. It's the safest investment that there is. Any earthly investment you make, moths can eat it, rust can destroy it. But what you have in Christ goes beyond death, goes beyond anything. You can't be cheated out of it. Look what it says there. It's reserved in heaven. That's the idea of being in a safe deposit box. Now, I love this. Going on verse 5, he says, you, he's talking about back to them. He's saying, you Christians, you have this inheritance that's going to last forever. He says, you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. He says, you Christians, let me comfort you with this. You're being kept by the power of God. He says, it's through your faith. Like, your faith in God activates this power of him keeping you and holding you and making sure that you don't, you know, I mean, he wants you to inherit your inheritance. Notice what he says there. You who are kept by, by the power of God through faith. Imagine how comforting this would be to a person that 
didn't know if they were going to be able to hold on anymore. I was thinking about that cat poster where it's hanging by one, you know. I was going to bring a picture of it, but I thought, wow, that's just too corny. But you guys know the one that hang in there? It's like a cat hanging from the trees, like, <laughs> But there are people that that's like their life every day. They're like, I'm just trying to hang on to get through the day. Listen, man, if you trust in God, his power is holding you. You ever see a kid holding their parent's hand and they're going to walk across the street? Do you think getting across that street safely depends on the kid's grip? Probably not. You who trust in the Lord, the power of God is holding you, keeping you. Thank God for that. He says that this will be revealed in the last time. There will come a day when you'll see Christ face to face. He will come and return for his church. You'll see him. And everything that you have in Christ will be revealed at that point. We see like in a shadow, like dimly right now. But one day face to face. Hallelujah. Now, we can rejoice in our trials, number one, because our salvation is assured. Just as sure as the resurrection of Christ from the grave, you have a heavenly inheritance that will not perish, kept by the power of God, all those things. What comfort that brings to somebody in a struggle today. Number two, our salvation anticipated causes joy. He says, in this you greatly rejoice. We rejoice in the keeping power of God. And going on, we rejoice in the fact that he has a purpose and plan for life's difficulties. Now this, there is some life-changing stuff. Uh, not that all of this isn't, but in these verses right here. He says, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. That is an interesting statement. He says to these Christians, he says, we rejoice but you're going through trials that maybe, if need be, you had to go through these. Do you see those words there? Look at those words. If need be. What this is saying is that there might come a time in your life where you need trials and grief. I guess it makes sense. Any good parent knows that. You, you want your kid to struggle a little bit because when they move out of the house and they don't know how to take care of themselves, you know, like you'd say, man, I should have had them struggle a little bit more, you know, or, or when they just become like, you know, so entitled, they can't, they don't do anything or thinking about anybody else. They just, they're just like total self monsters, you know, it's because they haven't struggled enough. You know what I mean? You got to have them have some struggle in life to form their character, you know, but that's what God does with you. He does the same thing with me. He says, you might have been grieved by various trials for a little while, if need be. Now, there are those that teach that being a Christian means you will never suffer or have trials. And that, I just, you know, if to, to assume maybe they have the best intentions in mind, uh, you know, I don't know. But it just is not biblically true. Biblically, what God says clearly right here, he says, in this you greatly rejoice that now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. The word various there is like different colors in the Crayola box, like all different colors of trials in life. You need all kinds of trials in life. And God brings them into your life and he allows them to be there. Now, 
This is super powerful right here. Think about this for a second. If you're in a trial experiencing grief and you understand this, it's not, oh, God, get me out of this, or man, if I could just muster up enough faith, I could just, you know, declare and decree my way out of this. It's not that. Rather, it's, oh, Lord, you have a purpose for this, and if you allowed it, I must need it. Man, that changes your suffering. All, you, you say, man, I go through a lot of trials, and I just complain through the whole thing. I can't figure out, why, is, why are you picking on me, God? If you would... Change your mind again. Here, it's back to the power of the mind, right? It's about the things that you think. If you would change your perspective and say, look, if God has allowed this trial in my life, I must need it. He must be doing something in my life. Now, that turns you from a victim to a son or a daughter. Because the Bible says that he chastises those whom he loves. I mean, he, it's, he's a good parent. He's a father. Any good father disciplines their children, shapes them, shapes their character, calculates the things that are to be hard on them, when to give them grace, when to give them mercy, when to let them struggle a little bit. Any good father will do that. And our Heavenly Father certainly does that for us. That changes everything, doesn't it? Next time you get into some struggle, you maybe stop yourself and say, wait a minute, God allowed this in my life. It's only logical, right? If God is all-powerful, and if God is all-loving, and if God is in all places at once, and if God knows every outcome of everything, and if he could stop any trial, but we still experience them, isn't it logical then that he must have a plan for it? That's just logical. There are a few different reasons that God allows suffering and things into our lives, and he doesn't talk about all those here. He doesn't really get into it. He just says, if need be. What's really comforting to my heart is that my pain and my struggles and my trials in life, uh, God has a purpose for them. If they've come into my life, then they've come. He, he's the superintendent, you know what I mean? He, he, can, he can stop anything at any moment. Now, that might dredge up some stuff for people that have really gone through some serious suffering in life. You might say, well, God, that's cruel. Well, here's the whole thing. My little tiny brain can't understand God. I know a little bit about him. The more I learn about his word, the more I know I don't know. But I, I can't understand his plan. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who is his counselor? And I think when we start thinking in these lines, it puts us in our appropriate place that he's God. And we're not, <laughs> you know, very simple. It's humbling and it's very comforting. Because now rather in my suffering, rather than squirming and finagling like a rat trying to scratch its way out of a barrel, I can just rest in the hand of the Lord. It's really powerful. Really powerful stuff. God is a mighty counselor. And he doesn't charge you 100 bucks an hour either. Now, does Peter tell us why? Well, in this context, he does. Look at verse 7. He says, That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Why does God allow me to suffer? Because he's showing me what's in me. 
So he already knows what's in me, right? He knows all things. So if he allows me to suffer, it's because he's testing me. He's, le- he's letting me see what I'm made of. Look at that illustration there. He says, being, he says, your faith being much more precious than gold. To God, your faith is precious to him, much more precious than gold. Gold perishes. It's going to all burn up and melt, Peter says, at the end of the age, you know. Um, but your faith is it's something eternal, and it's something that God thinks is precious. Have you ever just been so overwhelmed with joy for the Lord, and you say, I love you, Lord. What could I give you? What could I give you as a gift, God? You're so good to me. Well, I can tell you something that's precious to him, your faith. But he wants that faith to be solid. He wants it to be genuine. He wants it to be strong. He doesn't want any impurity in that. By the time you see him face to face, he wants to purify that. And I brought a picture because uh, this is kind of vivid, right? This is what they do with gold. They, they uh, refine it by heating it up. And when you heat up gold, the impurities come to the top of it. And then they scrape off the impurities. And then that's how the gold is purified. It's through fire. Now, we're very similar. Our faith is purified through the fire of trials. It's painful. You know that song, Refiner's Fire? Refiner's Fire. Like, I'm like, are you sure, dude? I'd be like, ah, Refiner's Fire. Ow, ow. <laughs> you know. But that's what God does because he loves you. He wants to purify your faith. In other words, is your faith genuine? Is it weak? Is it superficial? Now, let me challenge you. Maybe, maybe this is a challenge to you. It's easy to have faith when it costs you nothing. It really is. It's very easy to be Christ-like here for an hour and a half. I'll tell you what, but when you get home in your marriage and you have this tendency to not be Christ-like all the time, that, that's when you know, you're like, this is, this, I'm being tested. I'm, I'm being purified through these difficulties. Or when something happens in your life that you're just like, this is not right. I can't believe that this happened to me. I need to get revenge on that person. Wow. When we go through difficulties in life, that's where you see that it's, I mean, it's easy to have faith when it doesn't cost much. When the heat gets turned up, there will be a lot of people that go to churches in America that just don't go to them anymore. You know? And they just won't, they just, they won't be obedient to God anymore in those, at that time when it gets heavy. And in fact, Jesus told people that. He said there's four different soils and there's a sower that goes out to sow and he throws the seed on these different types of soil, and one of them, the seed sprouts up right away. Christian has this emotional reaction to a sermon or something one Sunday or goes to a youth rally and has this emotional reaction, but then when it gets difficult, uh, it says they just burn up. So uh, that's what he's talking about. He says that trials will come into your life, that your faith will be purified. Next time you're in this time of suffering and trials, just realize your faith is being tested. And... uh, You know, again, I've, I've seen this where the heat comes into somebody's life and the first thing they start doing is pulling away from church and then they start pulling away from their Bible reading and from the Word of God and you're like, are you kidding me? You're cutting off your spiritual umbilical cord. You're cutting off the source of power in your life, you know? You know that somebody's faith is just not very genuine when the first thing to go in their life is spiritual disciplines. Think about it. They're trusting in themselves. And so this Jesus stuff isn't working out for me. I got to take matters into my own hands. It doesn't end up good.
Look at what he goes on to say here. He goes, uh, whom having, verse 8, who having not seen you love. Notice the words you there, a little detail of the Bible. You haven't seen them. He's writing to people that haven't seen Jesus because he has. So he says, you, you haven't even seen him, but you love him. Though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. He's encouraging them. You guys haven't even seen Jesus, but when you think about the fact that you're going to meet him in heaven one day and this temporal life's going to be over sometime, he says, you just have joy inexpressible. Amen. We can rejoice in trials because our salvation is assured. Our salvation anticipated causes joy. Now, finally, the, Peter's going to turn from the present and the future realities of salvation back to the far past. And I'm just going to kind of summarize these last verses here. Um, verse 10, he says, Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully. What he's saying in this section is that prophets in the Old Testament, like David, Isaiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, Micah, they were curious about this salvation that they were prophesying. Remember how these prophets were predicting that the Messiah would come? Uh, you know, Isaiah said he'd be born of a virgin, that he would be the mighty counselor, wonderful God. Micah says where he, he would be born in Bethlehem. Uh, Daniel talks about him. Uh, even Moses says that there's a prophet. I mean, there's, there's prophecies, predictions about Jesus Christ coming all through the Bible. And he says here that they wrote about this stuff, but they didn't quite understand it. He said they didn't understand the timing of it. They didn't understand um, how it was all going to work out. The amazing part is that we've seen it all unfold. Can you imagine if Isaiah got to read the Bible, like the, the New Testament? Can you imagine that? I mean, he'd be like, I was sawn in two for my faith. Do you know they did that with Isaiah? They chopped him in two with a saw. And can you imagine if he got to read the Bible? He'd be like, all these prophecies I wrote about Jesus 600, 700 years before his birth. Wow, I get to see now how this all works out. I mean, we get to see it. That's exciting, right? Super exciting. I want to make this aside here uh, for a second. If you, have a, if you struggle, maybe you struggle here with the Bible and you say, oh, man just wrote that thing. Okay. Let me give you some facts most people that say that man wrote the Bible, well, man did write the Bible inspired by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit guided the words of it. It's called the doctrine of inspiration so that essentially man wrote down what God wanted him to write down. Now, the people that say, oh, man just wrote the Bible. It's not from God. 100% of the people that I ask, I say, do you know the Bible's not even one book? It's 66 different books. They, they didn't know that. They will confidently say, oh, the Bible's written by man, it's not written by God. And you say, let me just ask you the basic question about it. Is it one book or 66 books? It's one book, it's the Bible. Like, okay, dude, the Bible was written by 66, it's 66 different books, right? Over a period of 1,500 years, 1,500 years this whole book was written over. 40 different authors Every single book agrees about huge issues of life, what life is all about, what heaven's all about, all of these other things. You couldn't even get people in this room to agree about life issues. But you have 40 different authors over 1,500 years writing books where everybody agrees about the central biggest things about life. If that doesn't say that there's something up with this book... These 66 books, I mean, that's just a little bit of proof. Here's another thing you say, well, the Bible's just written by man, you know. 
For one, that's very convenient because it removes you from being accountable to it. Prophecy. Hundreds of predictions about Jesus Christ written hundreds of years before he ever came down to what town he would be born in. Psalm 22, the details, the details of what would happen to Christ on the cross hundreds of years before it ever happened. You know what is so funny about these people that challenge the Bible? Is they will sit there and watch some history channel show about Nostradamus and go, oh, did you hear about Nostradamus? It's like, dude, this guy got a fraction of a fraction of something right one time. The Bible has hundreds of prophecies that are fulfilled to the T. Nobody writes about the future and it comes true. Nobody. Now, you can intellectually dismiss what I'm saying here, but I mean, the people that challenge the Bible's authenticity know nothing about the Bible. If I was going to go ask somebody about my car, I would go to a car mechanic. If I was going to ask somebody about the Bible, I would go to a Bible professional. I wouldn't turn on History Channel and watch Mysteries of the Bible. I mean, come on. That's what Peter's talking about right here. He says this great salvation. He says these prophets wrote about this and they had the Holy Spirit of God in them. And they were writing about Christ, how he would come to the cross and then how he would suffer and he would die and then he would experience glory. And think of what that would do for Peter's readers. They would say, you know what, if Christ, if this was prophesied thousand years ahead of time and this is all going according to plan and I'm united to Christ and Christ was resurrected into glory, then I'm going to be too. Praise the Lord. I love that last little thing there. He says that things which angels desire to look into. <laughs> the angels, these supernatural beings that are operating in the uh, unseen realm, they are sitting back watching what God is doing with the church. Where it says that they desire to look in, it has the idea of like eagerly like peeking over a fence. That's what angels are doing with you right now. They're watching your life and they're going... How in the world is God doing? What's he going to do? How does he take these people that are just blasphemous sinners that just want nothing to do with them, and then he wins their hearts, and then they give their life to him? How does he do this stuff? And what's, what, you know, and they're eagerly looking. They're like, remember that show, uh, what's it called? Uh, with Tim Allen Tool Time? <laughs> you got the neighbor? I just think of the neighbor. He's like looking up <laughs> Mr. Wilson or something like that. <laughs> he's looking over the fence. And the angels are looking like there's just the whole universe, the whole unseen realm is on its, on its tiptoes watching what God is doing with you and what he's doing with the church. That's exciting. That's such a neat thing. And you're part of it. I'm part of it. This suffering they're experiencing is part of a great salvation that is the age-old ancient plan of God. Their struggles are part of a massive, enduring faith. As we navigate life and we go through trials, one thing, three things that we can count on from this passage today is our salvation is assured, our salvation anticipated causes joy, and our salvation was predicted. Now, We've learned about this incredible assurance of our salvation through Christ, and we've heard that our hope is living, our inheritance is secure, and our faith is being tested and refined. 
If you've never accepted Jesus as your Savior today, you're not part of this. And maybe today is the day for you to do that. And so I, I want to make that available to you now. If today is the day where you're saying, you know, I need to get involved with this. Um, I've understood that something is missing in my life. I'm empty. I, I, can't seem to, I can't seem to find out what life is about. I'm depressed. I just don't know what life is. I just feel uh, lost. It's because you need Christ. The very one thing that you were created for is to have a relationship with your creator. All this other stuff, it's perishing. That's why you're empty. Your heart is fixed on something today that's not eternal, and that's why you're empty. You have to have your heart fixed on eternal things for it to be full. Those that don't have a relationship with Christ are walking around saying things like, there's got to be more to life. I've never said that once since coming to Christ. Have you? Never one time. And I'll tell you, I used to say that about daily before I came to Christ. You're talking to a guy that was on the verge of suicide before coming to Christ. What is life all about? Life stinks. I have everything, but yet I feel like nothing. If you want to come to Christ today, this is what you do. First of all, you approach him and you say, this emptiness, I know that God placed eternity in my heart and only you can fill this. And so, I know that I've broken your laws. I know that I've sinned and all these different things. I've lied and cheated and stolen and all these other things and I've failed to give you glory and I confess them to you. And then what you do is you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That means you trust that God the Father sent God the Son to die on the cross in the place of a sinner, in, the pla in your place. And you believe that what he did at the cross was for your penalty for sin. And you believe and you trust in that. See, there's two options. It's appointed once for man, woman to die, and then comes the judgment. Every human in this room, 100% of us, will die, every single one of us. And then immediately, we will be in the presence of the Lord. It says it's appointed once to man to live, and then comes the judgment, or to die, and then comes the judgment. So you can stand before God in two different ways, one of two ways. You can stand there in your own righteousness, and you can say, yeah, you know, I've been a pretty good person. And God's going to say, but here's the problem, is you weren't perfect. Because the only people that get into heaven are, are people that have a perfect record. That's it. So, wow, I'm sunk. I can't do that. I'm condemned to hell forever. Yeah, you're right, because all of us are. All of us are in that state. But God doesn't want that. God wants you to be with him. So he's made a way for that to happen. He sent his son to take the penalty of all your sin upon him. And his son also lived the life that you could never live. He was in perfect obedience to the Father. So what God has made available to you today is for you to exchange your record. And I'm not discounting the fact that you might have been a pretty good person, or you might be. You're probably a, a tremendous person, but you're not perfect. And now you have the option to trade your not-so-perfect record for Jesus Christ's perfect record. And you have the option to trade the penalty for your sin, put it on him and take his righteousness. 
they refer to it as the great exchange. It certainly is a great exchange. He takes my mess and I take his perfection. And if I will simply trust, this is what this book has been saying for thousands of years to people. This is billions of people have come into salvation through this message, through this gospel message. If I will trust in that, if I will trust in what Christ did 2,000 years ago on that cross, God the Father, he will look at me and he will declare me to be righteous. And with that righteous standing, when I die, I'm into heaven because I have a righteous standing now, not my own. The righteousness of Christ is applied to my account. You say, that doesn't seem fair. I've been such a scoundrel in life. Why would he want to do this? Why would he want to take my bad record on him? Because he loves you. He wants to be with you for eternity. And you don't have to do some great work. You don't have to do any work at all. In fact, you don't need to get baptized. You don't need to go to church. You don't need to put money in the offering box. You don't need to read your Bible. All those things are good. You should do those things. But you don't do those to get saved. You just receive it. And it's a gift that's open to you here today. Maybe you want to recommit your life to the Lord today. And you can do that as well in this time when we pray. Father in heaven.